0: Good morning, you're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio South. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call, where we're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Becca Williams, joined by Rachel Lutcher and Luke Farrell. Today, we're talking about Biden's first year in office, New York's governor race. We've got a few interviews for you this morning, especially regarding affordable housing in New York. So that's super interesting. Definitely stay tuned for that. Rachel Luke, how are you guys doing this morning? It's a little rainy out today.
1: It's going to be snow pretty soon, the next hour or so, end of our show.
2: Oh, no, I can't deal with snow. I was a ski instructor for four and a half years. Snow is not my friend. You know, as much as I was out there, I was teaching all the little kids too, like three to 12 year olds. But I was like, you know what, the cold and the snow is just it was like negative 20 degrees some days. It was crazy.
1: They must have really complained.
2: Oh, no they did i had a diet of goldfish hot chocolate for the longest time over there but you know what they enjoyed it which was fun and so.
1: the parents i bet definitely complained also hey,
2: you know they're just happy i took their kids i mean you know that's at least good for that so well let's hope it doesn't
0: stick because there's no way i'm scraping my car out of a mountain of snow again that is the worst when your fingers are cold and you're having to push the ice off your windshield never dealt with that before i moved up here ever and it is not is not fun.
1: <laughs> I can imagine it's not fun, but my dad always steps in for me. He loves cars. Oh, so that's sweet. There is a good portion of things for my car that my dad maintains for me. Rachel, so I need your dad you to come
0: that. to my house and scrape my car <laughs> off for me too. I'll
2: definitely ask. <laughs> but I'm, I'm guessing no snow in Tennessee down there, though, right? Usually, you don't get anything. Though. Well,
0: sometimes we get a little like sprinkle of snow, but maybe like an inch or two. Mm-hmm. Nothing like we nothing like we usually get up here. But I mean, this year the snow was kind of lacking. We had like, what, like three and a half inches like a couple weeks ago. But other than that, we
2: haven't really gotten much here. Miami got snow ones, I remember that. That was like, that was in the 20th century. At some point in that's time, concerning. Miami actually got like a little bit of flurries, not anything too crazy. But I was like, whoa, wow. I read that one day. I was like, that's crazy.
0: Yeah, that's a shocker.
2: They must have been confused.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, moving past the snow, hopefully we don't get too much this morning to where we get locked in here with each other. Uh, Luke has some interesting stuff to talk about with us this morning as we all know Biden's first year is coming to an end Luke what's going on with that
2: yeah so I mean usually in presidential you know historical terms the first 100 days is usually like the really big uh, keynote time but of course First year in office is always really usually a big milestone as well. Uh, So, of course, January 20th, this time last year, Biden got inaugurated. Uh, And so pretty much he was looking to be kind of a breath of fresh air, kind of for an opening for a new administration and all that, a new party rolling in and all that. Um, But overall, it could be really seen as more of a mixed bag coming into what was going on. Um, Granted, you do have the $1.4 trillion billion dollars. It's really a trillion dollar infrastructure bill that was passed uh, over that time. Uh, but again, you had issues with the Afghanistan withdrawal. You had pandemic rule changes that were keeping going, vaccine shortages. And, of course, gridlock in Congress, which, of course, the voting rights bill uh, did not pass yesterday. There was that that happened as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly a very tumultuous time during that first year. But overall, what do you think uh, Biden's first year has done mainly? Uh, and what could you see as any um, you know benefits or also improvements that the administration can make as well?
0: Well, I know that a big issue and concern that a lot of Americans have right now is COVID, obviously. And that was a big thing as well, coming into his presidency, that he already had that on his shoulders of dealing with COVID. And, you know, it's not like any one person could stop a virus from spreading when it's already gone international. But I think a lot of people were expecting more because he did promise to bring back normalcy, you know, whatever that means, in h- once he was inaugurated. And... It's just like I think a lot of people feel we haven't seen that much done and that we've actually been feeling more of the effects uh, as far as in our economy. Like we had all those empty shelves at the grocery stores. I know you guys remember seeing that. And then, of course, the gas prices rising. People are angry about the vaccine mandates and the mask mandates because, you know, a lot of people are having the thoughts that, you know, if we're getting these vaccines and we're now what in 2022, maybe, you know, the mass mandate is outdated. A lot of people are having debates about that. So there's all this stuff building up. And I feel like he just hasn't really addressed it uh, like the people need him to do.
1: You know, I think a lot of people blame Biden for things that are out of his control. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the power to really control COVID the way that governors do. It really comes down to every state. Even look at Florida compared to New York. It, the change is drastic, right? Um, so I think that covid is defining his presidency the same way it did trump towards the end and i think that's frustrating because there's a lot of things on his agenda he didn't get to because he's still handling covid but I, I, again I, I think that a president can't do much to stop the spread of a virus
2: uh, i think another thing that was going on with that if i can uh, find my spots here um, oh my gosh i'm blanking out <laughs> oh yeah um like you said about things just like you know going, um, whatchamacallit, uh, like presidents basically, they you know get blamed for really everything. It's kind of like the buck stops here mentality of like Harry Truman for the most part, uh, pretty much like they're the ones at the end, like no matter what it is, if it's a different department or anything like that, it always goes back to the top. So people just want to have a person to blame, right? Kind of like mm-hmm. that scapegoat mentality almost. Um, but I know one thing that was really big was the inflation that was going on. I remember just looking uh, at one of the numbers, if I can find it down here. It was 7.1% of inflation at At the end of the first year, all the other past three presidents, so you're talking President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, all under 2.5%. Uh, Now, that could just be mainly pandemic wise, uh, but nevertheless, there probably could be other factors involved in that. But also you got the Federal Reserve with Jerome Powell and all that. So there's also that board going on in terms of economy, um, in terms of, of course, jobs and just regulating that. Um, But, you know, how much you give, you know, for a president to do one thing over another is always something as well.
1: You know, that's a really good point, especially inflation, especially for, you know, people our age, you know, in college, out of college. I think Biden made a lot of claims that he will forgive student debt, help the student debt crisis, and it just, we didn't see it happen yet. And Mm -hmm. and again, he's only 25% into his term as president. Again, maybe we'll see those changes, but right now he's not fulfilling his promises that he made in his campaign.
0: Yeah, the student debt forgiveness is definitely a massive one that I know a lot of people our age were probably— you know, really hanging on to and looking forward to, at least I was. Um, So hopefully that is something that gets some follow up in the future, because during the pandemic, of course, they were uh, putting kind of like a pause on having to pay your student debt, at least while the pandemic was going on. So hopefully we see some furthering in that department as far as a permanent forgiveness instead of just temporary because of the situation. But I definitely agree with what you guys are saying as far as Biden doesn't have as much power when it comes to specific covid mandates. I think people are just looking to him for some sort of reassurance since he did come in with such a strong stance on bringing back the you know the past the normal past that we were used to before covid, before masks and vaccines and all that sort of stuff. He put such a pressure on that for himself really like he started that uh that he was going to bring all that normal stuff back. And so I think we're all just looking to him to be reassured because when you're in the position of president you have all those eyes on you. And even though his approval right now isn't really that bad, he's at 42%, which, I mean, it's not great, but at the one-year mark uh, when we saw with our last president, he was at 35% Trump, and then Obama was at a 50% at the one-year mark. So comparatively to those two, it's not awful. It sits somewhere in the middle between Obama and Trump where they were at a year uh, into their presidency. So he's not doing that bad. It's just it started dipping like Luke said earlier, when he took the troops out of Afghanistan, that was a huge hit to his presidency. And then when the Delta variant was found, it dipped even lower. So, you know, he's ha- I think he's had a lot of things that are controlling his presidency, kind of that people are looking towards those things more than others like COVID. And of course, like the uh, Afghanistan ordeal, just like when Bush was president and 9-11 happened kind of thing, you know,
1: you're right. It, it is 40 42 percent. not that bad. Um, but again, like there's very minimal things he can do. And, and I think a lot of it falls on the Supreme Court as well, because we've seen a lot of mask mandates and, and cases of that nature go to the Supreme Court in mm-hmm. um, and, and various states. So I think that the biggest thing that Biden can do is really encourage the American people to get their vaccine, wear a mask, be safe. But he is distributing masks now, I, th- mm-hmm. I believe 500 yeah, well. million masks mm-hmm. to Americans. And I think that Honestly, it should have come a bit sooner, I think, a month ago. I think before the holiday season it would have been a bit better, but it's better late than never.
2: I want to know what you all think of this quote. So he had his press conference yesterday marking the one-year anniversary. Of course, I was watching on my good old C-SPAN, love some C-SPAN every now <laughs> and again. Um, so he said, where can I find it here? There we go. He said last night, uh, "quote I did not overpromise, and what I have, pro- and what I have, I probably outperformed what anybody would have thought would happen." End quote. What do you all think of that? That's of- really bold. Mm. Yeah, it is.
0: I feel like this whole discussion is just talking about how he did kind of overpromise. Mm. <laughs> I don't think that many Americans would agree with that statement that he didn't.
1: At the same time, a lot. Of, I think almost every politician overpromises. Like yeah. every single politician promises the moon, like when yep. they run for president and that they're going to fix everything and there's no trade-offs. It's going to be great if you vote for me. So I think that that, you know, a part of that conversation that we had kind of correlates to, you know, every politician makes those campaign promises. I don't think there's a single politician that came through on everything. It's
2: like, like a fake it, till so you make it mentality. A unicorn, yeah. So.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. I like I think a lot of people kind of expect that, you know, when you're hearing all those campaign promises, it's kind of like sweet nothings in your ear, like, you know, that it's probably not going to happen. I just the second part of this quote as well, when he was saying that he probably outperformed what anyone would have thought would happen. I think that's even taking it a step further. because Trump would say that. I th- yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people in 2022 <laughs> didn't think we would be dealing with a brand new variant of COVID. Right. I mean, at least I thought in t- back in 2020, like in March, that it would be over in 2020. And then in 2021, I thought it would be over then. And so I definitely would not say that he out he outperformed what everyone thought would happen I don't That's know about you
1: guys but i've been hearing a lot of conversation about 2024 and who's just running say, mm-hmm. um so let's talk about that like do you think biden will run and put his hat in the ring again in, i think he absolutely years?
2: will yeah definitely i i think the main issue is kind of like if he does he'll become the oldest president because guess what he usurps himself from this year than being the oldest president when that happens wow um so you kind of have that um, but honestly, I don't really know if he's going to rerun. I mean, it, and if he does, though, I think there will be a challenge that usually doesn't happen with incumbents, of course. Um, but I think a lot of people maybe on the progressive side, for the most part, are probably looking for somebody to kind of get these changes done and whatnot. That's always an issue. Uh, and then, of course, for Republicans, it's like, what do you do? Do you stick with President Trump again for when 2024 rolls around? Or do you try and find somebody that breaks out of that mold? So yeah. it's I. to me, I think it's going to be most crowded presidential election ever, honestly, where You're going to have a lot of people just running again, like you saw in uh, 2012 for Republicans in 2016 with Democrats. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you're just going to have it on both sides this time. So I think it's going to be like one of those giant like showcase WWE Smackdown style (laughs) elections. Um, So honestly, I'm kind of excited for what happens, but also very nervous at the same time uh, for what 2024 could bring. So, yeah,
0: I can definitely see him running again in 2024. I mean, it's only a year in; it's a little early to be able to see any signs of that i guess but i will see how they how democrats do with the midterms and i think that'll be a really big telltale sign of if he feels if he has enough support or not to run in 2024 but i really can see that as a real possibility just because so many moderate democrats really do back him and support him pretty pretty intensely him and kamala so i could definitely see them running again and and kamala as well i can see her even running for the presidential position as well
1: I just think a lot of people on the left don't think Biden is good enough. Like, I think that you're right that moderates do have his back. But I think for the most part, the way the party's shifting, he's not doing enough. Biden falls right in the middle. He's kind of the lukewarm president that nobody is a huge fan of. But people either think he's okay or are mildly disapproved of him. So I really don't see him winning in 2024. Um, But I think you're right to your point, Becca, that Kamala Harris might run. Um, And I think that would be an interesting, fresh administration. But I don't think that Biden has a strong chance of of being victorious. But again, it's far away, three years away. We'll see what happens. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I'd probably agree with Rachel on that. But then it's, you know, who is the one that rises up? Right. Who is the one that takes that mantle afterward? Um, and that's probably going to be something difficult, I think, for both parties, especially because, again, let's say President Biden for President Trump both run twenty twenty four. Their times are probably going to be up by when twenty twenty eight comes around. I don't think they'd probably go for uh, you can't really do thirds anyways. <laughs> so I guess there would be somebody new. Um, but then again, who takes that mantle? Because it's kind of like um, I think when like Reagan kind of left after that for Republicans, it was like right. who was the new person to take over the Republican uh, aspect of that. Um, And I think Democrats might have had that when Obama left as well. So that's obviously something to kind of consider in that fact Mm -hmm. when that goes around. And I think that's something that um, both parties are looking forward to uh, come that time. as Yeah.
1: Even like moving to the right, like who do the Republicans have besides Trump and and Ron DeSantis? It's going to be really interesting to see who actually steps up and runs for president, because right now I think the party is very not unified. And I think they're going to have a hard time picking that figurehead to go against Kamala Harris, Biden, potentially somebody else on the Left.
0: Yeah, I think we'll definitely see some newer people coming out of the Republican side. But I also think that moderate Democrats outweigh the more like left leaning Democrats because the more left leaning I feel is kind of our generation or like, you know, mid 20s, like it's the younger generation of people. And we see the older generation come out to vote more. So it's really all about who's gonna come out to vote this year. We've been seeing an uptick in voter registration, and people actually, younger people like our generation, actually coming out to the polls and stuff. So hopefully we see that continuation of that. No matter which way you're voting, everyone should be going out to vote. Um, was a,
2: that was something I learned in my AP government politics <laughs> class. <It> was always <laughs> midterms, less people voted, and then when the you know presidential mm-hmm. elections came up, you know everybody was like you know going to the polls and whatnot. Um, And especially, I think with the 2020 election, there was a lot more voter turnout, obviously. Um, But then again, what comes in 2022, right? Um, So that's definitely gonna be something to watch out for.
1: I just have to go off for a second. I think more people should vote in midterms because what happens at a local level impacts your life as an individual more than the entire country. So we see lower numbers, as you mentioned, um, last year in 2021, this year probably with midterms. But I'm interested to see if there's gonna be um, a red wave or a blue wave. Right. Because usually after a presidential victory, the other side kind of takes a swing. So I'm really curious to see if the Republicans make a comeback in Congress this year.
0: Yeah, that would be to be expected. So we'll have to see is going to be happening this year. So, you know, go out and vote in your midterm elections. Uh, But Rachel, you have something for us, a little interview. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So swinging to local journalism and the coronavirus pandemic. Um, the NYSBA held an event in the Rainbow Room of New York City recently, uh, end of last year, um, just celebrating local journalism. They inducted eight new candidates um, for both 2021 and 2020, and I got the chance to speak with some of my favorite people. Um, I met Janice Huff, David Ushery. Um, it, it, was, it was incredible to get to know them and, and talk to them about what it's like to be part of that organization and just to celebrate you know, local TV news and, and how their goal is to inform the community and they all talked about how their due dil- diligence is to uh, deliver information in, in, in true and accurate form so it was great to be at that event and, and uh, be part of it.
0: Well it's always good to support local stations and it sounds like a really fun experience so I'm excited to listen. Let's go ahead and give that a listen. This is a interview by Rachel Duchar.
3: When you start in this business you never expect an honor like this. The New York State Broadcasters Association held their annual
1: Hall of Fame induction ceremony in New York City, honoring the class of 2020 and 2021. President of the NYSBA, David Donovan, says it's gratifying to finally come together again in person.
4: Broadcasting both radio and television, the fundamental thing we do is communicate and reach out with people. And it is just wonderful after... All the risks of our reporters going out and, and risking their own lives in terms of doing reporting on COVID, it's nice to be able to get back together again in person.
1: NBC4 anchor and journalist David Ushery says it's an honor to be inducted into the NWSBA, an organization where many of his colleagues and mentors are a part of.
4: Our state is vast and it's big, but when we come together like this, you can see how we're all facing the same challenges in the industry. FACING THE SAME RESPONSIBILITIES. AND SO THE NEW YORK STATE BROADCAST ASSOCIATION, I'M HONORED. YOU KNOW, I KNEW PEOPLE WERE IN IT. AS I SAID, I FOLLOWED MY OWN COLLEAGUES, CHUCK AND JANICE AND Gay PRESSMAN, WHO REALLY MADE ME BETTER. SO I AM JUST TRULY HONORED.
1: NBC4'S CHIEF METEOROLOGIST JANICE HUFF WAS ALSO IN ATTENDANCE IN SUPPORT OF HER COLLEAGUES AND HER
5: NEWS TEAM. IT'S ALWAYS EXCITING TO SEE NEW MEMBERS COME IN, NEW PEOPLE BEING HONORED, ESPECIALLY MY COLLEAGUE AND FRIEND DAVID Ushery. I'm very so excited and proud of him and especially now we all went through this horrible time with COVID not being able to see each other and do these kinds of things. So today's extra special. The coronavirus
1: pandemic posed many challenges in local news with ever changing guidelines and ongoing issues that impact communities. Anchor at News for Buffalo and 2021 inductee Sam Walker says in her career, the pandemic is the most significant story she's covered as a journalist
3: covid is the number one story of our time in my 42 year career covid is the most important story that i have covered
1: ushery remembers what it was like as a journalist during the beginning of the pandemic he says he felt a real sense of responsibility to the community
4: do you think about how scary it was in those first few days where the story and the uncertainty started spreading like wildfire you know we have one infection then it's multiplied and then we don't know fully how it spread and yet when we're in local news, that's when we really feel we have to be responsive to the local community.
1: Janice Huff says local news reporters found ways to work hard during the pandemic and go the extra mile to deliver the
5: news. They've done a lot of great work. It was a rough time for everybody. Um, a lot of us worked from home, but a lot of people like David actually showed up every single day when the city was empty, when nobody was around and got the stories out there. Walker points out the
1: motivations and intentions reporters have in local
3: journalism. To reach out to people in our community, people who don't have a voice, people who may have disabilities, people who want to be heard. And that's really what we do in local television news. We reach out to those people.
1: The veteran journalists at the event give advice for young reporters looking to enter the field of TV news.
4: I want you to keep at it. I know it might be discouraging. I know that there's all kinds of things pulling at you now, but we need context, we need great storytelling, we need accuracy. So that's all I want you to take with you and stick with it.
3: My advice is to keep your eye on the prize, be smart, and be good. Do your homework, be ready, all those things, but never give up, never give up, because you will do it if you're determined, you will do it.
5: Stay strong, stay focused, remember your community when you're out there covering the stories and that why you're doing it is because of the community and for the community and uh, stay true to yourself you know be passionate about it
1: reporting from the rainbow room of the Plaza Hotel in New York City I'm
6: Rachel lusher
0: well thanks to Rachel for sharing that with us this morning those was some great words of advice for early in the morning even if you're not pursuing a career in tv news or broadcasting still some good advice you know don't give up keep doing your work you'll get there you know i think those are some good words that all of us could use this morning especially with all the stuff that we're going through
2: right now right luke that's your motivational playlist of the morning right there yeah <laughs> that's exactly <all> you, need. <laughs> you throw that on you know what you're hyped and you're ready to go so
1: but anyways back to politics so we're going to talk about how bill de blasio announced he will not be running for me- for uh governor after yes. all He caused a big stir, and I think the whole um, climate in New York City, the the political scene, is all very interesting because we have people in the same party not liking each other, like the whole feud between Cuomo and Bill de Blasio we've seen over the past four, eight years. Um, But, you know, despite fundraising, he tried to get endorsements. Um, He will not go through with running for governor. He would have ran against Tom Suozzi and uh, current um, Governor Kathy Hochul. So I think that he would have had an uphill battle after all but he did you know run for president before so Mm -hmm. so bill de blasio is very ambitious i'm not sure if he's well liked especially in new york city i personally have not met a single person in new york city who likes mayor bill de blasio especially even democrats um but he said on twitter quote i'm not running for governor of new york state but i'm going to devote every fiber of my being to fight for inequality in the state of new york what are your thoughts on this what do you think about bill de blasio kind of dropping out really early
0: well, OK, so my thoughts were there were all of these uh, people, especially himself and his his administration, that were really hyping up his run for governor. Like we've been hearing about this for a couple of years now, and he obviously enjoys uh, the the running because he did, like you said, run for president, even though it was uh, fairly unsuccessful. But Kathy Hochul has got a lot of support already uh, with her position. So I'm I'm not surprised that he didn't win. I mean, didn't run (laughs) because, like you said, there's already a lot of fighting going on within the party, and I don't think that he would have had a good chance. He doesn't have that much support in a recent governor's race. Polk only had 12 percent. And because Hochul has already have already had so much support uh, because she has been in the position for a little bit now. Uh, not a full term, you know, obviously, but just a little. She's already gained a little bit of footing, and he was at a disadvantage coming into it. So I'm, I'm not surprised that he dropped it. Uh, I am surprised of uh, what he said when he announced that he wasn't going to be running anymore. He said that he was still going to be in the public eye and, like, uh, helping with this sort of stuff. And like you said, that he wanted to assist with like racial justice—is that what he said?
1: Uh, he didn't really explain yeah, why that's or what, how. Yeah, just so like it's a kind lot of, an of empty yeah, quote exactly. To say.
0: <laughs> just like a lot of him saying that he wants to continue his work, but like By not retiring? really explaining. How that's gonna happen or what his next step is—that was very confusing to me. But yeah, I'm not surprised that he didn't run.
2: Luke, what are your thoughts? Now, I was curious. Did he ever make like, um, like official like announcement in terms of like actually running for governor? Because I feel like these polls sometimes it's like, well, we'll speculate that they're gonna be running for pre for like you know governor, president, or anything like that. Um, did he like ever really have a, like a thing that he said, "I'm going to run at all"? Or what like what was the deal with that?
1: I believe he did back in either last summer or the fall. Becca, if you can step in and correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, no, he time, definitely
2: did, and his administration did as well. Like they were hyping it up pretty big. Okay, because like I, you know, I don't have Twitter. I, you know, I you try don't to have Twitter? know what. You do Twitter. Should you get know, Twitter. Here's the thing, Luke. What? I only have a LinkedIn, folks. I do this for <laughs> professional reasons. Get professional. Twitter is professional. Benefits. You Twitter make all professional. sorts of Yeah,
0: you make all sorts of professional connections on Twitter.
2: 240 characters to go blast somebody's breakfast every day. I I don't know if that's my cup of tea, but Bro, I mean, I know, love Twitter. I love Twitter for news and journalism reasons. You get to hear all sorts
0: of different people's perspectives on Twitter. It's really interesting. You should get it. Twitter's I don't know.
1: Twitter's really
2: interesting. I'm just not a social media fan in general. Okay, okay. Anyways, that's fair. Back back to the let's, let's plug our handles. <laughs> uh, uh, follow <laughs> at
1: Rachel underscore Lucia on Twitter. Oh gosh.
2: <laughs> follow at I don't have a Twitter on Twitter. Um, back to politics. But anyways, um in regards to his presidential run, I didn't feel it was a run. I think it was like a slow trot in the park. Because uh, <laughs> he was only polling under one percent and like whenever he was on the democratic like debate stage, he'd be like on the side. Side wings. I'd like the left or the right side, which you knew wasn't really getting a lot of support there. Um, but nevertheless, um, I think in terms of leaders and things like that, you know, you can't really have like this huge ego and mentality and I feel that's like what Mayor de Blasio probably kind of had during that time. Yeah. He's like, you know what, I'm going to set my sights so high, but I'm still the mayor of New York City. When he was running for president, he was still the mayor. You still have obligations in the city to run and it's kind of like you're leaving your city behind by going and doing something more for yourself rather than the community you're serving so i felt like that was interesting at that point um but otherwise popularity wise in the state it probably would have been really difficult for him to probably gain the governorship um just in terms of of course upstate tends to be more republican and then really that downstate area tends to be more democratic um but it's how do you reach all those voters is the issue it's it's Uh, also that
1: he wasn't really liked by four out of five boroughs but like Honestly, he wasn't that bad listening to his press conferences during, you know, COVID times in 2020. He still, you know, delivered a good message, a responsible message. He wasn't that bad of a mayor, but I think there's all this meme culture and, like, jokes about Mayor Bill de Blasio. But um, to Becca's point earlier, he was trailing by more than 35 points behind Hokel, uh, according to a Siena poll. Um, and the survey also found that black voters who were crucial to... Uh, him winning uh, mayor in 2013, uh, we're still keen on him. And he led amongst most black Democrats, 36 percent compared to Hochul's 26 percent. Um, so that's that is pretty interesting. He he does have some substance. But, you know, I think the consensus is he d- doesn't have enough to go all the way.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree. Well, I guess we're going to see Hochul and Swoozy Swoosie. Swaz- he's Swaz- he's Swaz- my representative
2: in Congress here. So that's you your know. rep. That's my rep. That's right. You're yeah. voting for him. No,
0: I don't. Are know. you registered you know, in New
2: York? I'm registered. In, I'm an independent in New York, Ooh, uh, so I don't uh, actually vote in primaries, which stinks. I feel like they should yeah. just open the primaries. I'm also yeah, so independent. That would be great. Um, but uh, no, I, I'll definitely vote. I don't know who yet. It's a little too early to yeah. tell. Usually, I remember last time they actually had the uh, governor debates here at Hofstra. So hopefully, if they bring that back again, I that would that love would to be, see that a that debate at so in Hofstra. I, I would, would show up. Uh, but you yeah, know, we'll see. So. I'm in
1: District 6. That's Grace Meng. So I will be showing support or also I I think it's also important to not just vote by party lines, just by researching um, candidates. I think for midterm elections, because there's not a lot of voter turnout, I think people just go straight down the ticket. And if they're Mm -hmm. Democrat, they vote all all blue. If they're Republican, they vote all red. So I think that it's important for everyone to do some research in in the background of people who are running to represent you in Congress. I think a lot of people just don't care enough. And I, I think I have such a, a passionate, you know, idea about local elections. They're so important. They matter more to your individual life, and it'll impact you so much more than the who the president is. I, yeah, I think that everyone should do more research and care a bit more about local elections every single fall. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we also go too much with name recognition as well. You know, yes. just because yeah, yeah, yeah. someone is in the media a lot or you see their campaign ads a bunch doesn't mean you should necessarily vote for them <laughs> just because they're a household name. But I guess we'll just keep an eye on these... Uh, governor elections. And we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're going to have an interesting story about a campaign ad that is raising some eyes in Louisiana. And we're also going to play a little piece that I worked on on affordable housing in New York and specifically on Long Island. So stay tuned for that.
1: You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of Hofstra University,
7: 88.7 FM WRHU, as well as its management. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Your morning show team will be back right after these updates. Long Island's largest
8: radio news team brings you the Associated Press award-winning program, Newsline. Weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Exclusively on WRHU-FM and WRHU.org, Radio Hofstra University.
0: And we're back, 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. Like I said, we're going to be playing a little piece that I worked on. Uh, I worked on this for a couple of months, actually. There's about five different interviewees in here, and we're talking about uh, affordable housing in New York, how that's affected by homelessness and how it affects homelessness they kind of go hand in hand both ways um and then moving on to Long Island about racial discrimination housing if you guys remember that big Newsday piece that was released uh in 2019 I believe uh I talk about that a little bit in there as well affordable housing in New York and Long Island is a huge huge issue and obviously it's been covered in the news uh quite a bit but I wanted to give my take on it so Without further ado, here is my piece on affordable housing.
5: So I've always been aware of being homeless, uh, being without a place to call home after I turned 16. So I was introduced to it about around about the age of 16. It became really to the forefront of my life.
0: Rhonda Jackson is a 60-year-old mother of three and native of Queens, New York. She's been in homeless shelters up and down the East Coast from New York to Florida. At 16, Jackson had her first daughter while she was going through New York's public school system.
5: I couldn't live where I had been living. You know, up until that time I had to relocate to Brooklyn and that was a very harsh culture shock for me. I almost quit high school and didn't get my diploma, but you know, um, because I had supports in place that helped me to uh, Finished my high school diploma. My struggle with homelessness actually came after my grandmother passed away. Jackson went to live with her
0: grandmother in North Carolina shortly after the traumatic experience of 9-11. She says it caused her to have a mental breakdown.
5: I was a station agent and my station was just underneath the World Trade Center, so it would have collapsed on me. And that morning, I just missed relieving the night clerk. So I had a mental breakdown and I just took the whole family and left New York City and I was gone for about 10, 11 years. My grandmother passed away. I had to go into a shelter in North Carolina. Rhonda is only
0: one out of 80 to 90,000 homeless New Yorkers in the metropolitan area, each with their own story. It's impossible to know the exact number of people struggling with homelessness because it presents itself in many different ways. Jackson, as well as many others, have been homeless without being in shelter.
5: And it's not so much that I've been in a shelter, but I've just been without a place that I could call my own. And that's what many people fail to realize is that if your name is not on the lease, then you're homeless. You know, being on Grandma Couch and a cousin's basement and things like that, that wasn't my home, you know. So that was my uh, struggle for quite some time.
0: For those in shelter, Jackson says the system is not always helpful to find your next step, which causes people to feel more confused and isolated.
5: So the biggest struggle being in shelter is finding out what am I supposed to do? Who Who is working with me to get me out of this? You know, I, I want to go to school. Or I want to go to work. And the housing specialist is not there. The case manager is like, oh, I can't see. You know, it's just it's a it's a lack of caring about the people that's in shelter that they're missing
0: the homelessness crisis in new york is multifaceted it's not as simple as a person sleeping on the sidewalk or on a bench even though that is what is commonly associated with the issue as rhonda explains being homeless could mean sleeping on a friend's couch or in your car it could mean living in a motel this is what makes it impossible to determine how many people in the state are truly struggling with homelessness because it's much more than we could account for. So why do so many New Yorkers struggle with homelessness?
6: We always say that it's hardest for people who are earning the lowest incomes or people who are on fixed incomes to afford rent in New York City or elsewhere. Jacqueline Simone is a senior
0: policy analyst at the Coalition for the Homeless, the oldest advocacy and service organization for the homeless in the nation.
6: So to put that into context, in New York City, a renter would need to make about $35 per hour just to afford a modest one bedroom apartment in New York City, or about $40 per hour to afford a two bedroom apartment. Now, that's double, actually more than double, the $15 an hour minimum wage. So, we actually have a significant number of people who are working, especially people working these essential frontline jobs, who don't earn enough money to afford rent because of that huge gap between between incomes and rents in New York City. There's a huge misconception
0: that people who are homeless simply don't have jobs or don't try to be active in their communities. However, this is clearly not the case. In 2020, a nonprofit organization called The Human Impact estimated that 25 percent of the U.S. homeless population were working but simply couldn't afford to pay the rent. According to Simone, the need for affordable housing is essential to maintaining a livable, sustainable society for all.
6: If people who are, you know, pouring your coffee or who are cleaning your building or doing any of these really essential jobs can't afford to live in the city, and they leave, um, or if they lose their jobs because of the instability of homelessness, that also impacts everyone else, right? Having an economically diverse city is really important, but we need to make sure that people actually have truly affordable housing that they can live in um, in order for that city to succeed.
0: Affordable housing in New York has been a perennial problem that never seems to get resolved. Agencies and programs for broadening affordable housing began to pop up in the early 1930s, yet it continues to be a conversation in our government today.
7: The big problem is an inadequate supply of affordable housing.
0: New York State Senator Brian Kavanaugh is the chair of the Housing Construction and Community Development Senate Committee.
7: There are lots of people who struggle to pay the rent. Many, many renters are paying 30, 40, 50 percent of their income to cover their rent, and that is considered really problematic uh, by you know, advocates and analysts from across the country.
0: Kavanaugh says the roots of the problem spread wide. The affordable housing crisis affects New York in a multitude of ways, which he discovered during his four years of work in the state senate.
7: We did some work in the housing committee with our committee on investigations and government operations on code enforcement and found that many localities don't have the ability to enforce the housing and building codes very effectively. So throughout the state, it's a crisis. And um, we see that in the difficulty that people have affording housing, uh, we, have, we see it in the difficulty of uh, businesses and universities to recruit uh, workers and students. You know, if you can't move into a community affordably, you can't work there necessarily.
0: Housing options for low-income individuals or households can be unsafe or not up to building code. However, with the severe lack of affordable housing, there is little to no other choice. Ian Wilder is the director of Long Island Housing Services, a nonprofit fair housing enforcement agency. He says that this lack of housing puts more pressure on New Yorkers that are struggling with homelessness.
9: And they're struggling to find housing that both meets their family or individual needs at a cost they can afford. It also increases uh, the danger in housing. We have so much housing that is uh, rentals that are not by permits that are in basements and attics, which were not built for people to live there. So there's also lack of safety. People are constantly on the edge with their income because the housing costs so much. So one crisis can put them over the edge and they can end up being homeless here.
0: This housing crisis affects a person's ability to find a safe place to raise a family or to live in an area with well-paying jobs. No one understands this struggle more than black and brown communities on Long Island, where racial discrimination in housing is very apparent. Elaine Gross is the founder and president of Erase Racism, a regional nonprofit organization advocating for racial equity in housing. She says that Long Island has a lengthy history with racial discrimination in housing.
8: Well, when Long Island changed from being basically rural and farms, it was developed to be racially segregated. So it was at the time when the federal government basically had a policy that said that all housing would be developed in a racially uh, segregated manner.
4: And this is Levittown. Here, you can own your own home, complete with its own refrigerator, television set, and clothes dryer. You can raise your children far from the city's dirt, crowding and crime, in comfort and safety.
8: So when the veterans were coming back from World War II, from the late 50s into the early 60s, the white veterans could move in, but not black veterans. That really set the stage for when Long Island was booming with new housing. It was really developed in a way that was racially segregated.
0: Racial discrimination in housing continues today on Long Island. According to the New York State Senate, Long Island is one of the 10 most racially segregated metropolitan areas in the nation. As the director of Long Island Housing Services, Ian Wilder prioritizes educating the public on housing discrimination that continues today.
9: We have uh, structures for building housing on Long Island that haven't changed from our Jim Crow past, which makes it very difficult to build affordable housing. We have home rule zoning, uh, which is part of that past, which allows municipalities to limit what kind of housing can come into their area. We need to change those structures because they uh, keep us from being able to build the housing that's badly needed on Long Island.
0: The concept of home rule zoning on Long Island is a real issue. Zoning is what allows municipalities to control what land can be used for, such as setting restrictions on real estate. Article 9 of the New York State Constitution restricts the power of the state legislature when it comes to local or home rule zoning.
8: They created maps. Color coded maps that identified what racial groups were living in which areas.
0: Elaine Gross says home rule zoning allowed for maps that created racially segregated neighborhoods on Long Island.
8: The people that they often hired to create those maps were realtors. And realtors had been discriminating for a long time. <laughs> you know, they did that informally. Even the National Association of Realtors. Uh, had policy that it was uh, unethical to mix people.
0: Racially motivated zoning could restrict black and brown children from going to strong schools, people of color from being close to well-paying jobs, and families from being in areas with affordable and well-maintained housing. Although it became illegal to discriminate in housing based on race, color, or nationality in 1968 under the Fair Housing Act, Gross argues that the damage was already done.
8: It was pretty embedded (laughs) that you only have white people living in neighborhoods with white people. And if you're dealing with, you know, with black people, you're only putting them into communities with black people. And uh, the real estate industry, the banking industry, the the housing developers, you know, like Mr. Levitt, everyone was uh, on board with that policy.
0: And it's clearly not a thing of the past gross points to long island divided a three-year undercover investigation into housing conducted by newsday and published in 2019
8: newsday found that the black testers they were shown homes to purchase in different communities uh, overall than the white testers for newsday they were also sometimes they were told they had different requirements so they might say, Oh, you have to have your mortgage guarantee or whatever it's called in hand before I give you listings and before I take you out to show you homes. And then for a white tester, they asked about the mortgage guarantee, but then when the white tester says, No, I don't have it, they just showed them listings and took them out anyway. So, you know, that kind of disparate treatment Uh, it, It has always been done by realtors.
0: How is it possible that this racial discrimination continues on Long Island despite laws in place to eliminate it? According to Ian Wilder, it takes more than laws to reprimand decades of mistreatment to these communities.
9: We've passed laws, but laws don't change structures. They give people rights if they can enforce them but we need to dismantle the structures.
0: Wilder suggests Long Island should take down cultural symbols of housing discrimination to signal to people that change is being made.
9: We can have a discussion whether Levittown should be, the name should be changed back to what the area was once called because Levitt basically built housing with racist causes. We should discuss whether we should have a statue of Robert Moses in Babylon Village, which is a village that is overwhelmingly white when he uh, was known to build structures that were racist to keep people from being able to travel on the island and move out here.
0: Racial discrimination in housing purposefully consolidates Long Island's minority population to areas of lower income. In 2020, Nassau County Office of Community Development revealed that Hempstead Village's population consists of 93.7% Black and Hispanic or Latino residents. Freeport Village is 72.5%. These two villages have some of the lowest median household incomes in the county. People of color are already locked into these low-income areas due to housing discrimination. This means they don't have access to higher-paying jobs and are more reliant on affordable housing. By mainly building affordable housing units in low-income areas, families and individuals reliant on that housing are forced to stay affordable housing in higher income areas would allow for more people of color to move into these towns. This would lessen the segregation and allow for more educational and financial opportunities.
8: There has been a problem with getting black people into those units.
0: As Elaine Gross says, there is still resistance to moving black people into higher income areas on Long Island.
8: The town of Oyster Bay had some family and senior subsidized housing. They were only letting people who already live there, live in that housing. And in the town of Oyster Bay, at the time there were like 3% black people and only 1% of the 3% were income eligible. Meanwhile, there were all these other black people who (laughs) you know, might wanna live in the town of Oyster Bay. That housing policy, even though on its face, doesn't have anything to do with race, the impact of that policy does.
0: As Gross says, income eligibility plays a big part in receiving affordable housing. This eligibility is often determined by AMI, or Area Median Income. This is the combined average income of the region. AMI determines what households qualify for subsidized rent and how much that rent will be. When affordable housing is mainly available in low-income areas, the AMI will be much lower. Rhonda Jackson says, working individuals could easily go over the AMI and be at risk of losing their affordable housing. People
5: come out of shelter and we get jobs or, you know, whatever. We begin to live a life and build a life. And then because you are now over the AMI, you lose your voucher, which puts people in a predicament, especially if whatever they're working with, or whatever monies they're getting, assistance that they're getting, is not enough to cover the rent. So the minute you actually make a little bit more money, they want to snatch the voucher, which puts you back in a situation where you may have to go to shelter.
0: The instability of housing causes the risk of homelessness to loom over any change in income. The mass layoffs of COVID-19 brought this issue to the forefront of many lives. As a result of the major income loss, there have been attempts at government assistance, In 2021, Congress allocated around $46 billion towards emergency rental assistance. Based on population, New York State received $2.6 billion for assistance. Jacqueline Simone from the Coalition of the Homeless says this assistance was a step forward in government acknowledgement of the housing crisis.
6: In the course of the pandemic, the federal government also allocated billions of dollars for emergency rental assistance. This is huge because it was a recognition that we needed to help people pay off their rent arrears instead of allowing them to become homeless. So that program, which is called ERAP, or the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, is being run by the State Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance. However, ERAP,
0: along with other New York State government solutions, have been criticized for falling flat. ERAP requires applicants to meet all sorts of requirements, such as a certain percentage of the AMI.
6: That does have a pretty cumbersome application process, and there were definitely some hiccups initially when the state first launched that program. It's great that Coalition for the Homeless has an eviction prevention program, but When you see the scale of the need, particularly during the pandemic, it's clear that we also need significant government resources.
0: Advocates say these solutions are band-aids at best that were only implemented because of the amount of back rent accumulated during the COVID pandemic. ERAP allows households to receive 18 months of assistance. With some owing up to a year of back rent, these solutions seem more focused on the past rather than what the future of affordable housing looks like.
7: We know we've had a mismatch between people's ability to pay for housing, and the cost of housing for a long time.
9: None of us are hunter-gatherers anymore. We need people around us to keep our society moving. We live in a gig economy where people are vastly underpaid to do their jobs, and those people need some place to live. We have the answers. Researchers have done the
5: research. They've written books about it. You know, there are papers. We have Journalists who are writing about it, documentaries have been made about it. We know the answers.
0: In December, 2021, Governor Kathy Hochul announced that New York would be the first state to launch a homeowner assistance fund. This was approved by the U.S. Department of the Treasury and will provide $539 million in funding. It will assist homeowners vulnerable to eviction and displacement. This fund will not assist the homelessness population or build more affordable housing units. It is not a complete solution, but it is a step forward in limiting the homelessness or at-risk population. There is still so much to do for affordable housing in New York, but each small step forward takes us further into the right direction. Well, thanks again to everybody that uh, I interviewed for that piece. It was a lot of work, but definitely worth it. Uh, I'm really passionate about affordable housing and we were talking about it a lot over, uh, the little bit of break that we had while we were listening to the package. So definitely, you know, a really big issue that affects a lot of people in New York, but we wanted to move on to something a little bit lighter to wrap up the end of our show today. Uh, so we have something that's, uh, a little, a little bit, you know, heavy hearted. 17 people, uh, were killed in a fire in a new york city high-rise that obviously you know take a huge toll on all of their families and just the people in new york but cardi b has recently offered to pay for the burial costs for these 17 people uh so you know she's saying that she's you know proud to be from the bronx and when she heard about the victims of the fire she knew she needed to do something to help so you know shout out to cardi b for that That that's really selfless of her to do
1: And she's so proud of where she's from, and to Mm -hmm. give back like this, I think, shows a lot about who she is as a public figure. She said, quote, I'm extremely proud to be from the Bronx, and I have lots of family and friends who live and work there still. So when I heard about the fire and all the victims, I knew I needed to do something to help. She said, I send my prayers and condolences to everybody affected by this horrific tragedy. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams did announce this um, actually yesterday um, that she will offer financial aid for the victims and um, Adams says that the resilience of this city reflects every day um, a New Yorkers who never turned back on one another. so I think it's a really hard, like heavy-hearted um, piece to, to bring up because um, that was a horrific fire. 17 people um, dead. It was sparked by a faulty space heater and it's hard you know obviously to see something like this happen over something preventable and and to see a tragedy like this but I remember the news coverage when this fire happened um, the whole city came together um, and local stations in the city came together to cover this Uh, so I think it is uh, not a happy ending but it's really heartwarming that Cardi B stepped up in this way
5: I
2: think it's kind of like what they always say you know New Yorkers always come through you know no matter Mm -hmm. what challenges we face or whatnot there's always some way uh, we kind of make it through all of them Um, But all I can really say in the words of Cardi B's song, I like it like that. So, you know, (laughs) always good to hear good stories like this. I wish celebrities did more of this stuff. I mean, because, you know, I don't want to hear the whole spats on Twitter about somebody going about somebody because they, like, cheated on them or this and that, you know. Try and do some benefits for what you can, you know. You have the opportunity. You have the spotlight that you give for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, make something good out of it, you know. Donate to a food pantry, you know. Serve your community and stuff like that, you know, instead of just having some random beef that you might have with somebody else one time. So.
1: Exactly and it, it's so special that it is where she's from and and New York City I, I feel like residents there have this reputation that they're rude or that they're fast-paced but I think in times of tragedy they come together and we've seen that with 9-11 um, so I think in a time like this especially New York City residents banded together and it's, it's really special that Cardi B gave back in this way and to your point it is so important to focus on people who listen to you, and and you have such power to influence their lives, and the families of all seventeen victims will definitely never forget Cardi B and the way she stepped up for them and to help out in this way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. New York really is a tight knit community, and I've we've seen this. I feel like a couple of different times where celebrities from the area have helped either by donating or by raising awareness for something so this is just another great example of when you have the funds when you have the platform like luke was saying you know use it for something good and this is people that you know cardi b probably sees herself in a little bit you know these people that were from her city she you know this is where she grew up from so this is probably something that really hits close to her heart as well because this i mean from a from a faulty space heater that really could happen to anyone, right. you know? So it's something that is really scary. 17 people, that's a lot. And so the costs would have been pretty high, especially since some of the victims' families were saying that they planned to bury them in their uh, hometown of Gambia, which is in South Africa. So that would have really added to the costs of the burial. So I'm glad that Cardi B has stepped in to assist them with that. That was really kind of her. So obviously all of our thoughts and prayers go out to the families of those 17 people. And uh, we just hope, you know, for safety for the rest of them uh, throughout the year. That's gonna wrap up our show this morning. Rachel, Luke, thank you guys so much. Wonderful conversation as always.
1: So great being here. The best way to start Thursday morning, as I said last week, is with you guys. It was great talking about Long Island issues um, first thing in the morning. Now it's 9 o'clock. Maybe it's snowing outside. We don't know. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Go check. That's it's the snowing. big mystery of this morning.
0: <laughs> so
2: we'll see what happens. But.
0: We'll see. Well, next week is going to actually be our last show uh, for a January session. And then we'll be remixed with some new hosts uh, in February, so make sure you definitely tune in next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 8 to 9 a.m. on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, and we'll see you next week.